Hello, Les Raymond here with the Mindful Movement. Whether you are about to enjoy one of Sarah's beautiful meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to remind our community that the best way to support the Mindful Movement is to support the companies that make this happen. Sarah and I are very picky about the companies we choose to work with, and we are grateful to have the relationships we have and to share them with our listeners. You can learn more about our affiliates through our website by clicking on the Favorites tab. We are excited to have recently added Sunlighten as an affiliate. They make state-of-the-art infrared saunas, and their founder, Connie, came on for a recent interview if you would like to listen. Our Sunlighten sauna has been a family favorite for over a decade. Some of our most popular affiliates are the grounding mats from Ultimate Longevity, which we sleep on every night, and the Apollo Neuro, which Sarah is now wearing daily to help manage stress. When you support these brands, you in turn are supporting the mindful movement and helping Sarah and I continue to devote our time to this passion. Whether you check out these companies or not, I just want to say thanks again and reiterate how grateful Sarah and I both are for all of the support over the years. I hope you enjoy the episode. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Hi, welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. This is Les Raymond, and this is episode one, kind of. Kind of because a few years ago, the Mindful Movement actually began as a podcast. Sarah's intention was to start a podcast to connect movement professionals around the world and learn from them and facilitate the learning of others. And around that time, after about maybe uh, half a dozen or so episodes, Sarah felt that it really wasn't what she wanted to do, and these videos that she was making on YouTube happened to be getting really good feedback. So, uh, long story short there, Sarah switched gears, kind of dropped the podcast, and focused on those videos, and the rest is history. I mean, it's been just amazing to watch the feedback come in and watch the channel grow, and it's just been unbelievable. I mean, I am eternally grateful for the work she's done and what she's, how she's contributed to really making the world a better place, if you ask me. And I'm really honored to be part of her journey. That being said, I've been a big fan of podcasts personally for quite some time. And they're, I guess, a a big part of the content that I allow into my space. And I think it's because there's a sense of conversation that comes with podcasts that I think is just missing in our lives. Maybe not all of us, but I think a lot of us could relate to that idea that it's inherently like built in to our species to connect with others and, and converse. And I don't think in this day and age we get a lot of that. Well, I know that we don't get a lot of that. I'm sure there's exceptions. And I feel like podcast is really a great space to facilitate conversation. So I would like to play my part in that process by bringing 
more conversation into the lives of others with hopes to also make the better make the world a better place. I mean, I feel when I look around what's going on in the world, I sense a lot of like collective suffering and a lot of individual suffering. And as I've been practicing over the years of navigating my own suffering, I noticed that we have a say in how much we suffer. <laughs> and just like anything, it takes practice. And I'm a big fan of practice. If you've seen any of my content that I have put out with my mindful tips, I do firmly believe that we really become the sum of our practices. And I would like to practice doing my share to helping the reduction of the collective suffering and kind of raising the frequency of the collective consciousness that we all share. There is, I think on some level, some fabric that ties everything together. In fact, I think a lot of the suffering that we experience is born out of the idea that we're not connected, that there is some separation. And as I've taken deep dives into this topic, and which seems to always find its way down the path of quantum mechanics or quantum physics, it's, it's kind of an interesting path, I think. Ultimately, you realize that there's the separation that we sense is an illusion on some level. It's just something, it's more of an interpretation of our experience than an ultimate truth. Today, I'd like to just take some time, not really taking a deep dive into the topics that ultimately this podcast is going to be about, which will be along the same lines of our current, I don't know what you'd call it, value proposition, um, essentially creating space for peace, building positive mindset, self-healing. Today, will be more like just a medium dive on me and just so the audience could get to know me a little bit better. Ultimately, this podcast will have guests, hopefully. Hopefully, I could recruit guests. I have a few scheduled and looking to <laughs> schedule more and and also take deep dives personally on the topics that really align with the same concepts that the meditations are about and the mindful tips that I've done, but just taking deeper dives and exploring those ideas and concepts of application and how to integrate some of those ideas into our lifestyle. But today's just uh, bringing up to speed on me. I was born in 1977, in July, on the 26th, in Maryland, born Leslie Stephen Raymond. You're probably aware, if you're listening to this, I go by Les Raymond. I had two older sisters, and at a fairly uh, young age, my parents split up. And I think a lot of people could relate to this um, for obvious reasons. I mean, I think I heard a statistic about half of people that get married split up. So if you do the math, there's a lot of people out there whose parents split up when they were younger. And... I stayed with my mom and my sisters, 
And my dad stayed close. He lived across town in the same town. And it wasn't that big of a town. So for a while, on the weekends or on Saturdays, I'd go spend at my dad's house or apartment. And for a while, my sisters would join me. My older sister, Aviva, and my even older sister, Kimberly. Uh, Aviva was about, hmm, I think, around a year and a half older than me. And my sister, Kim, was is five, year, five years, one day older than me. And over the years, that changed a little bit. My relation, the relationship between my oldest sister and my father kind of went different ways. And you know, there was probably toxic relationships in every corner of the family on some level, whether we knew it or not. My father was an alcoholic growing up. Not a blatant drink all day, can't function alcoholic. But um, but drank every night, probably more than the average person. And his relationship with the mother obviously wasn't optimal because they, otherwise they wouldn't have split up. And that created kind of wedges in the family between my sisters and my mother's influence on my sister's relationship with my father. My, my parents had one of these in, interesting relationships where they, they always acted like they support each other. And... I love my parents. I know they both love me. And one of those common things I would hear was, I don't want to say anything about your mother, but yada, yada. And then the same thing for my mother. I don't want to say anything about your father, but, and then they, you know, say the negative things about the other. And I felt like I was in the middle of that a lot. And as the relationship between my sisters and my father changed, I felt like I was kind of in the middle of that relationship, too. Like, I kind of grew up feeling like I was the, I don't want to say buffer, but I always found myself defending the other, um, which I think on some level turned me into the devil's advocate in a way. And the the interesting, so so then things kind of changed. So my sister, my older sister, stopped spending time with my father on the weekends. And then my other sister followed suit. I forget how long it was. There was some period of time where it was just the two of us, not the three of us, uh, with my dad on the weekend. And then ultimately it just became me. And that went on for a while, I think, till I was um, maybe a young teen where I would still spend Saturdays with my dad and we had our routines. And I know he struggled a lot. He has suffered himself quite some bit decades now of depression and back pain and he had a I think a traumatic several traumatic experiences growing up which affected him and affected the way that he could show up in the world for the others in his life which we all are I mean we're all always affected by everything that's ever happened to us there's kind of a cumulative momentum of how we show up in any given moment and we ultimately just, you know, do the best we can with the tools that we have at the time. So from my mother, I learned very different things than from my father, for sure. And I stayed very close to my mother and protective of her. She was a, a single mother of three at this point, working multiple jobs and just admirable effort to 
put food on our table and clothes on us, and we never had a lot of money, but we always seemed to have enough for what was needed. And I will forever applaud her for how she's mothered, and I'm grateful to have her as a mother. And she is still alive. She lives with my older sister, Kim, in Boston, in the Boston area right now. And one thing I have definitely learned from her is what it feels like to be unconditionally loved. In her eyes, I think I could do no wrong. I mean, and I did what most people say would be a lot of wrong. I was not a very well-behaved kid. I got involved very early with alcohol and drugs. I got in trouble with drug-related stuff and alcohol-related stuff as a child. And my mom was always there at my defense. And I just never felt any sense of judgment from her. I really think I could do no wrong in her eyes. Maybe to a fault. I don't know. And I definitely love her for that lesson she taught me what that feels like. And in turn, I would like my kids to know that I love them unconditionally. Unfortunately, I feel like I fail regularly on a very regular basis on showing that intention successfully, which haunts me on a regular basis, which I'm sure we'll get into that topic in future podcasts as I find I guess the skill of parenting, a fascinating topic. My father didn't parent that same way just because he just didn't know, not that he didn't love me, he just wasn't as skilled at showing it. And there was no doubt in my mind that he loved me, but he just didn't, I think, love himself enough to be able to deliver that message clearly to a child because a child hears that different than an adult you know we when you're a child your brain is not fully developed so like for instance I remember when my parents but I remember the day that my dad left and I mean it was a toxic relationship I'm sure between my mother and my father but ultimately he was um, not faithful And I think that really led, that was the final thing, I guess, that led them to split up. And he left the house that I grew up in. And I remember the night that he left, I remember being around the doorstep of the front porch and him walking out. He had a suitcase. And I didn't really understand what was going on. I was, like, confused, like, you know, where's dad going? Is there, you know, vacation I don't know about? And... I was four or five, and you can't at that age experience that and think to yourself, oh, this is not about me. This is, you know, two adults that don't know how to communicate well and don't value the relationship enough to make things work or take the steps. Or, I mean, you, you just can't think on those terms um, at that age. You experience that very differently. And ultimately, like deep down in the heart of that confusion is really the feeling of not being worthy. Like I'm not worthy for my parents to s- stick together. I'm not worthy of of my father's love for to just to keep him 
to want to stay. That's what I think this, like the subconscious feels, regardless of what's told to you, because at that age, you know, you, that's just what you feel. And you don't know that you feel it. Now, as an adult now, I know where that feeling shows up numerous times later in life in my behaviors. And through meditation and practicing like self-awareness, you start to see those connections. You start to see, oh, I behave that way because of this. That stems from a belief system that started a long time ago of whether it be not being good enough or worthy of love or lovable or whatever. I'll tell you, just here's a perfect example. Just me bringing out this podcast today, I wanted to start this podcast like, I don't know, a year ago. Think about it every day. Terrified of probably not doing a good job. You know, terrified of not being good enough at it. So it took me this long to start it. I mean, things like that, it's subtle. They, they're born out of belief systems that generally come from our past, from our childhood. And that's just one example. I got lots more. Lots and lots. Speaking of being terrified of starting this podcast, um, I, I'm going to ask for your patience. This is obviously new to me. I'm going to ask for your listening and I'm going to just ask for your patience, as I don't know how skilled I'm going to be at this, but I can assure you I'm going to practice, so I'll get better at it. Please bear with me during that process. So getting back to where I was. So at this point, I was like a teenager. I was getting involved in alcohol fairly early. I got a job at a local restaurant. There was a couple kids that were a little older than me. And it seemed like every night when the restaurant shut down, the servers and the cooks and such would start drinking as you like cleaned up the shop, as you cleaned up the kitchen and the restaurant and prepared for closing. So I started out as a dishwasher there and moved on to be like a cook or assistant cook. And during that time, I started drinking very regularly because basically every shift that you work you ended with like drinking as you sweep the floor and I was I think 15 and around the same time I was introduced to marijuana and I fell in love with it right away and I remember having some it was in like the closet of my friends actually it was in the house that later on many years later I wound up meeting Sarah but in that house, smoked a little marijuana with my buddy, and the next day wanted more. I just wanted to have it every day for the, from then on, it seemed. <laughs> Fell in love with it. And that led to a course of ultimately getting into some trouble with those two substances and also, you know, discovering and getting strong connections with other more stronger substances. So I got involved with opiates and cocaine. So for a good while, I was drinking, smoking, taking opiates 
and using cocaine on a very regular basis. Somehow, I was able to quit all those, one by one. <laughs> um, which, in hindsight, sounds kind of crazy when you say it out loud. I don't think I've said that out loud many times. Hmm. Quitting opiates. Whew. Now there's like an epidemic of that, I guess, opioid epidemic, they call it. And, man, I get it. That stuff feels good, and it is very challenging to get off of it. In fact, I remember when I got off of opiates, I basically lied to everyone in my family, which when you're an addict, you're very comfortable doing. I mean, you lie all the time. And I told everybody I was sick, like I had a sore throat, strep throat or something like that. And Sarah and I were living in her parents' basement at the time. And I basically locked myself in the bedroom in the basement for like two weeks, miserable in bed and just like by my own, on my own, within the lie, just like fought through it and like emerged two weeks later and never took an opi opiate again, I think. I think one time maybe I took one after that years later and it freaked me out and never took it again, but um, basically kicked the addiction there. And then with cocaine, I was really lying to pretty much everyone in my life that I was using that. Very few people knew that I used that. And um, it wasn't as long of an addiction, but it had an ending where there was a lot of fear involved, where I did too much. And ultimately, I think I might have been really close to what the limit a human could handle because I thought I was having a heart attack or something. And I, um, and I just swore off it that night. I was just praying to make it through the night. I remember I was living with some buddies in Baltimore City, and I was in the living room by myself, like in my underwear, sweating. I don't know what time, late at night, early morning, and um, just swearing to myself I'll never do it again. And it scared me just enough where I never did it again. But being an addict for a long time definitely has a big impact on your life. I drank alcohol almost every day for 23 years. I just celebrated my four years of, of no booze a couple weeks ago. I think it was the leap day, February 29th. Ironically, I went out to a Maryland basketball game that day with my buddies who I used to always drink with, who I see maybe once a year, maybe twice a year. And um, usually for a ball game to get together. And it's, I don't know, kind of interesting. On my four-year anniversary of not drinking, I was out with guys that were drinking who I used to drink around. <laughs> and, you know, when you stop drinking, things change who you hang out. You don't see the same people because you realize how much of your activities with those people are really based around drinking. And nothing bad about these folks. I love these guys. Um it's just the nature of our behaviors. Uh, you don't realize that you're always looking for a reason to go out to hang with your buddies, and really you're looking for a reason to drink. And your buddies are a vehicle for that. It's like an excuse. I want to go see, hang out with my buddy. Really, it's I need to go feed my addiction. And I want, a, I want an excuse that doesn't make me sound like a bad person. <laughs> Something like that. And then... 
cannabis addiction was interesting. So that one I got in the most trouble with. When I got to college, so after high school, I went to James Madison University down in Virginia. And I studied, uh, ultimately I studied economics there. And um, in my third year, I well, I had been growing cannabis here and there, a little bit at the end of high school. Uh, my third year, college living off campus, I started growing it in my apartment. I don't know what I was thinking. And um, I, it was funny. I had the, the apartment that had the highest, like elevation-wise, like the highest <laughs> balcony in town. So nobody could really like see in it because it was like on top of this. It was the top floor of an apartment that was on the top of the hill. So I had like plants out there and ultimately I got in trouble and they were found somehow. I think, I don't know, somebody ratted me out of the, and I got arrested for having, for growing cannabis, which in Virginia is not a good thing to have happen. And especially at that time, I guess these days with illegal in most places, it wouldn't be such a big deal, but I got arrested and I'm so grateful I did because that led me to coming home from James Madison a little early. I was three years in, and I didn't finish my fourth year there. I, uh, I came home, and on that break is when I met Sarah. So I feel like if I didn't go down that path, I didn't get in trouble, I don't think I would have met her. Definitely not at the time that I did. And for a while there, because I got in trouble, I had to like drive down to Virginia from Maryland to do to see like, I don't know, probation officer or pro yeah, probation officer. And I had to like pee in a cup and do drug tests and I was still using. So I didn't stop smoking because of that. So I was still smoking weed on a regular basis. And I found a way to beat the tests every time I had a pee test, the things that an addict will do are just crazy. Like I would flush my system with orange juice on the drive. It's a two and a half hour drive to the point where I probably don't realize the damage I was doing at the time, but I would drink so much orange juice that when I got there, my urine would be so like diluted or something that I kept passing the tests. So I would, <laughs> I took extreme measures, which it, now when I say it out loud, it's crazy. Like I sound like such an idiot, but like, wow, what addicts will do to keep their addiction alive is staggering. So I did that for, I don't know, like a year or so. And then after that, I was done with the legal stuff and um, I was still smoking. And then eventually I stopped. Like it became something different to me. Like I didn't really know when I you know, it gets to a point where it's like when you're high, it becomes your normal. You do it so much. And I don't remember the exact reason why I stopped, but eventually I just stopped. And I went, I don't know, 10, 12 years without touching the stuff. And I never at any time during any of my use of alcohol, cocaine, opiates, Marijuana, it never, it was never like used as any kind of medicine. I mean, I was, I'm sure, like now I know I was soothing something. When I quit drinking, you know, that's when I really started to notice why I was drinking. It's hard to see why you do things until you stop. And then you see, oh, you know, you're soothing pain and suffering on some level. And when I was using all these drugs, I, 
I never had an idea of why I was using them. It was always like for fun, recreation, entertainment, just to, you know, to get stoned or whatever. And it's interesting because now I'm a big fan of plant medicines and all in many ways and I see the medicine in them. And it's like a different respect for them. I feel like I almost didn't respect cannabis as a kid. And now I look at it as like a gift that could really help individuals make their life better if used with that intention. Intention definitely matters. So after getting in trouble with college and coming back home and meeting Sarah, I dibbled and dabbled in a few different uh, sales jobs and then ended in the mortgage industry and worked in that for about a decade. Um, and then, and that was kind of a great industry and I liked what I was doing. I had a, just a terrific boss who I worked for and she, you know, she gave me a lot of um, leeway on how to do my business and it was a really good time in many ways. And Sarah and my relationship grew stronger and and then and then it didn't. <laughs> and ultimately she wound up breaking up with me. And at that time, the mortgage company I was working for, my boss was looking to open a location at the beach in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. And I was like at a crossroads in my life where, you know, my girlfriend wanted me out of the house and I didn't know what to do. And I said to her, my boss, I said, let me go open that. And I probably, I would, well, I probably, I definitely was not qualified to open an office, a mortgage office on my own. Um, I was a fairly decent salesman at the time, but I just didn't have the organization skills and the management skills. But she liked me. We got along really well. And she took a chance on me and I left and I moved to Delaware. And I was still in contact with Sarah. I mean, we cared about each other. It's not like we had some bad breakup or something. Uh, we definitely loved each other. And we stayed in contact. And ultimately, that contact grew a little bit. And while we were on a break, per se, Sarah got pregnant. I don't think I have to describe the science behind that one. Um, and that changed everything, obviously. So we decided to take that as a sign and get back together. And we wind up getting married. She moved out to the beach with me. And we had our first child, Molly Isabel Raymond. And soon after Molly was born, we kind of felt like being out at the beach there wasn't the right place for us at that time. We had all four of our parents back in Columbia, Maryland. So we moved back and we moved in with Sarah's parents and then ultimately uh, bought a house and then sold that move back into her parents and then bought another house and then ultimately moved back in her parents and then eventually wind up. Uh, now we live in a house that her parents built and where we all live in. And um, <laughs> it's funny. And 
we've been together since. We've had another kid, our second child, our son, Cosmo Jacob Raymond, was born in 2006. So we have two kids. Molly is 16 now, and Cosmo is almost 14 as I'm recording this. And they are amazing. They are our greatest teachers. And it's just been an honor to be a part of their lives. Which makes me think of something uh, I've learned in a book recently. Sarah put me onto this book called The Conscious Parenting. Conscious Parenting, or The Conscious Parent, one of those. And it talks about your kids are here to teach you how to love yourself, how to love and accept yourself, so you could learn how to love and accept them. And man, that is such a powerful statement. I just love that, love that. I think it's so true. So, my when we moved in together in 2010, with her parents, or 2009, building a big house for everybody to live into, living together. I was kind of working my way out of the mortgage industry. So at the time, I became a pretty unhealthy guy. I topped out at just shy 240. I know I saw 237 pounds on the scale one day, which if I was seven feet tall, probably wouldn't be a big deal, but a 5'11 is pretty unhealthy. And uh, it was not muscle. So I was, you know, I had habits, lifestyle habits that were not conducive to good health, say the least. Every day at lunch was always a cheeseburger or pizza. Or, I mean, every day, just some large amount of processed food and refined crap. And I got pretty fat and pretty unhealthy. And I don't think I realized how... what. I don't think I felt bad physically, but I just didn't really know because I didn't know what good feels like. You know, you don't know how bad you feel till you feel good kind of thing. And at one point, Sarah and Fran, my mother-in-law, Sarah's mother, signed me up for a local race, like a 5K. And I hadn't run since like high school wrestling. I was never really good at it, proficient at it then. And um, I guess, I don't know if I took it as a hint or maybe there was a fear built into that decision unknowingly, like a feel of not being good enough based on how I looked, maybe not worthy of Sarah's love. I told myself that I'll take it as a hint, but I don't know. There might be a a deeper belief-driven decision there where I knew I had to do something so I just started running and I think when they signed me up I had like a few months till the race start and like every other day I would just go out for a run and at first I mean it was pathetic I could barely make it a half a mile I thought I was going to die but eventually I ran that race and a lot of good things happened along the way I never really worked on myself in any way physically that way so I lost some weight And I got inspired by it. In fact, I didn't want to stop. I was, like, afraid to stop. So I signed up for another race. And for about seven or eight years, 
I signed up for races constantly. I would race like every month. And in the county I lived at, they had these weekly race series. Sometimes I would race every week. And Sarah's dad was a former triathlete. And somewhere along the way, he inspired me to pick up triathlon. And I took a pretty deep dive into triathlon. And I've done about 35 triathlons. So that was like a big shift for me, going from a fat guy that helped people like, I don't know, move money around so they could buy houses to somebody that was like addicted to exercising essentially. And along that way, I became a personal trainer. It was kind of funny. Um, Sarah was a personal trainer and a Pilates instructor, and she had the book laying around, the book that you take to learn to take the test to become certified as a trainer. And I remember starting reading it just like out of personal interest because I was getting into fitness just to learn more about the body and physiology maybe. And after I read it, I said, you know, maybe I'll take the test. And I didn't even like aspire to be a personal trainer. It was almost out of like a curiosity. So I took the test. I wound up passing it and still didn't really think much of it until like a year later when I decided to put it in action and I started teaching a fitness class in Sarah's mother's Pilates studio. She opened a Pilates studio called CoreWorks Fitness in the tail end, tail end of her uh, regular career or um, as a side career and maybe something to set her up during retirement. So I started taking a, teaching a class there and I got pretty good feedback that I didn't suck at teaching these classes. Now at the time I didn't, I wasn't really well skilled at what I was teaching. Um, I wasn't very experienced, but I was getting good feedback. And then I started teaching a class to some of Sarah's friends that were also triathletes since I was still doing triathlon. And now I was able to teach fitness. I was teaching a fitness class that was, um, I guess uh, on some level could be called a strength and conditioning class. And then um, I started to like that. I liked that job a lot more than my prior job. So we looked for an opportunity to move into more of a full-time situation with that. And then an opportunity came. When we when we uh, moved to this new house that we we built, We um, there was a gym nearby that was in a business district. And it was kind of being run by the property manager of the business district, which was not something she wanted to do. She not wanted to be like a manager of a gym. So they offered the space to us so that we could use it. So we took over this gym. So we had a space to offer personal training. And I basically overnight became a full-time personal trainer. And I grew this gym from 40-some members to at one point over 500 members. Along the journey of teaching people how to apply exercise into their life, I've been so fortunate in the teachers that I've come across in that field. And I'm so grateful for this. I really got lucky. I got lucky by getting in touch with some of the most brilliant minds, I think, in the movement industry. And I've been spoiled with the content that I received from them. And it's allowed me to apply a very 
sound system to my clients and to help my other coaches apply that system. And that's been a gift in so many ways. And along that way, I've become a more skilled coach, helping people explore ideas of movement practices and develop ways to apply those practices to their lifestyle. And if I had a niche that I was probably best at, that would be it. That's probably what I spent the most time on and most practice. I mean, like I say, you know, we are what we practice. I practice that. I look at movement practice as a very big part of my life. And practicing movement and inspiring someone else to practice are two totally different things, um, two completely different skill sets. The practicing, I think I'm highly skilled at. In theory, the teaching of that I'm skilled at, the inspiring others to dive in that path their own is something I'm still working on. Made a lot of progress. Um, but, you know, we all have our limitations and we all have our schedules and our the constrictions our life situation puts on us. And it's just a more challenging thing to to do. It's one of those you can only help someone that wants to be helped kind of things. Um, and I'm sure in a future podcast, I'm going to be taking some very deep dives into ideas of movement and defining movement and kind of painting the picture of how to organize a practice in one lifestyle, in one's lifestyle. And what are the qualities that you would practice with movement and why and what are the directions those practices point but that's not going to be for today. But since that's what I could probably speak most on, I'm sure at some point I'm going to take a deep dive on that. Because as we do work on self-healing, you know, I don't know if it's really possible to really be your best and to be healthy and to have a high level of well-being without moving. I feel that as a human organism, we are definitely designed to move. And it is healing. It is medicine. Medicine was, is what helps you live. And it definitely helps you live. So for the last, I don't know, 10 years, 11 years, I've basically been in the fitness world. And then helping Sarah a little bit with the channel. By far, Sarah does the most. She's just put so much into it, but occasionally I write some of the meditations, and those meditations are usually born out of my own struggles, and I do those mindful tips, or I did, and that was fun, but I felt like I just wanted to take some deeper dives. I want to have a little bit more conversation on those topics, and I want to learn from others, I could use some others in my life. We could all use some others. So I want to facilitate otherness and others learning from others and listening and learning so we could all discover new ways of being 
and show up in the world in a way that aligns with the things that we care about and what our deepest values are. I've never said all these things out loud. It's a little frightening that it's being recording, recorded. I don't know where this podcast is really going to take me. I have ideas, but as I practice, time will tell. I really want to thank everybody for listening this far and hearing my story. And I really look forward to working at delivering more content that you guys feel useful. I'm open for feedback. If you feel like there's something that you would like talked about that you think could help yourself or others, please let me know, and I will do my best to accommodate. If there's a guest you think that our audience would enjoy learning from, please let me know. And if I think it's a good fit, I'll do my best to reach out and make that happen. Again, I ask for your patience in this process. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for the feedback that our community has given Sarah and I these last few years making us believe that we are on the right track. Stay tuned for more. Have a great day.